Well, it was on May 31st, 1578, while some vineyard workers were working the fields near Rome, that they accidentally stumbled onto an entrance to an underground graveyard that had been lying undiscovered for 1,200 years. And according to those who were there that day, it was as if they found a city within a city or a city underneath a city. They had accidentally unearthed the ancient catacombs. Ultimately, they found about 750,000 graves that stretched 620 miles through this multi-level maze. And the catacombs, they had been lost, but now they were found. These catacombs, they have a really special and interesting history as it relates to the church. Uh, Christians in the first century, they didn't want to be cremated uh, as it was the custom of the day, but they wanted to be buried so that their bodies could be around when Christ came back. And so, since uh, as they went through that thought, they couldn't be buried within the city limits due to the persecution of the first century church, and because they had very little money, they looked for other ways to bury their dead. And so, there were some wealthy Christians who donated land outside of the city, outside of Rome, and to maximize the gift that they had been given, the others would just bury their dead just deeper and deeper. As time went on uh, in the early church, hatred for the, for the Christians began to grow, and, Christ, and persecution followed. Christians were being thrown to the lions, they were being crucified on crosses, just like their Savior. The Christians would meet in houses, and they'd meet in fields, and eventually it, came, it became so dangerous to meet in those places that it was time to find a new hiding place. This persecution led to Christians eventually meeting in the catacombs, seeking fellowship with one another. And this was so common, but by the third century that we find government banning Christians to meet in cemeteries. But the church's hunger for fellowship was so incredible, so insatiable, that their their desire to be with one another was so gloriously displayed when the church assembled in the catacombs of Christian martyrs, even with all that persecution looming in the background. Why would they do that? Why would these believers risk life and limb just to see one another? Why would they descend into the graves of those who have been murdered and persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ? Why wouldn't they just rather stay above ground and pray uh, in their own prayer closets? Or why wouldn't they just have family church at home singing by themselves? Well, it's because something happened to them. Something had happened to them that was unlike anything else that they had experienced before in their lives. Something life-altering. Something course-changing. Something goal-shifting. They had come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And because of that, because of that fact, there was no more status quo. Everything changed. The rest of their lives, they just had to see one another. They had to hear each other's voices. They had to experience the amazing resurgence of each other's faith. They had to reassure one another of their faith, uh, regardless of the cost. They had to have fellowship with one another, or else they would die trying. Today marks our third Sunday of exploring uh, and studying what the church is. 
Two weeks ago, we looked and we saw who it was that builds the church. Jesus exclaims and, and uh, uh, he says, I will build my church. It's Jesus. It's the Messiah who builds his church on the foundation of the truth. And that should give us unshakable confidence. And last week, we learned that the only way that we can be united as a church is by loving one another. We saw that out of Colossians. And like as we put on uh, like a piece of clothing, as we practice all the Christian virtues, it's the, it's the love that will perfect those virtues, right? It's the love that brings the perfect bond of unity in the church. And today, we're going to be studying and exploring and building on that idea of unified love, right? Unified love in the church will lead to true biblical fellowship, Christian fellowship is crucially vital, but the idea of fellowship in our day is vastly different than the early church, right? Where they met in the catacombs amongst dead men's bones. Fellowship today stands in, stands in contrast to risking everything in your life just to gather with other believers. I think that the, that the current understanding of fellowship, it's really shifted to this stoic activity that you do either before the worship service or during the two-minute greeting time that we have here at church. You know, it's, it's handshakes and how you doings. And that's, that's basically the sum total of our fellowship experience. And when the average Christian thinks of fellowship, they think of maybe a designated hall or a designated room somewhere in the church building rather than a state of being of believers. <clears throat> I think the main reason for that is because we haven't traced our definitions of fellowship back to scripture. We need the biblical basis for what fellowship is. You could say that our culture today is a culture uh, or a society of societies. What do I mean by that? We live in a society where there's a group for everything. Right? Everything under the sun. If you're fighting cancer or if you've beaten cancer, you have a, a society of cancer survivalists. If you're a recovering alcoholic, then you're going to be a, a part of the society of reformed alcoholics. If you like books, then there's literary societies. We've, decided, we've developed societies at every turn. And what's the common thread of all of those? Right? It always has to do with the interests that we share with one another, right? If I have an interest and then you share that interest, well, let's form a society. If we're interested in the Civil War, well, let's, let's go and create the Civil War Reenactment Society. If you like birds, then there's birding societies, right? Everyone finds their identity in each other's interests. But you'd be surprised to know that biblical, the uh, true biblical meaning of fellowship and society, and togetherness in the Bible. is It's not related to our interests at all. What unites us is not a common interest, but a common salvation. It's a common transformation. It's never sufficient for a Christian to say that he or she is part of a club, right? Or he or she is part of a like-minded society of believers, as if the church was a fraternity. Rather, you are part of a group who have been radically transformed by grace. And I think you could take it as far as to say that any society or fraternity or health group are just shadows of the true living communion that God's people have with one another through Christ and his spirit. 
So Christians are not defined by common attitudes. We're not defined by common hobbies. Christians are defined by the spiritual act on the part of God that has happened to us at the exact moment we believed in Christ. Right? This is not some kind of lofty theological pseudo-relationship that we have with one another. It's a true and powerful and internal, real, abiding relationship that was formed at the cross with Jesus Christ the very instant we believed. Now why am I going through such detail about this at the beginning? And why is my intro so long? Well, I think that there's a drought. Not in, not in the rainwater or available water for us, but a drought of true biblical fellowship. And so our goal this morning is to remind ourselves, or, or if, you, if you're not reminded, then to rediscover biblical fellowship in our church. And we'll do this by getting back to the basics. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you, open up to uh, chap, uh, 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. The Apostle John he begins to unpack this idea of fellowship. We're going to look at verses 3 and 4. See, John, he begins this letter uh, being very upfront with his intention. He wants to unite his readers with himself and all that they have witnessed in the account of life and the ministry of Jesus Christ so that they might have this common life with one another. And this is what he says. Look at verse 3. What we have seen and what we have heard... We proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So right from the beginning, John emphasizes this amazing concept of fellowship and the priority of fellowship. And he wants his readers to have this fellowship. He wants, to have fellowship, they want, he wants them to have fellowship with him and he wants them to have fellowship with God. And they can have this fellowship with him and with God only if they walk in the light. See, if you walk in the dark, you don't have fellowship. So John's arguing that they have fellowship, that they share fellowship, and they better not fool themselves into thinking that they have it when they really don't have it. And so what is this fellowship? What is this genuine biblical fellowship? So this morning in your notes, you'll see that we're going to look at three facets of fellowship. Three facets of fellowship. We're going to look at the counterfeit of fellowship. We're going to see the core of fellowship. And lastly, we'll see the crop of fellowship. See, all the elders here at Church of the Canyons, we desire for each one of you to have a deep and profound and lasting and enduring relationship with one another. That's the goal of our heart in this whole church series. Right? That a heart that flows from Jesus Christ is shared with one another. See, once we know who, uh, what the church is, and then who builds the church, and then how we are to be characterized, that should mean that Church of the Canyons should be known as the most deeply sweetest place on earth when it comes to fellowship. 
We want each of you to have an abiding relationship with one another and with our Lord. And, uh, and, and you'll see that it, he'll do any, beyond anything you ask or think, right? At the end of our series, we don't want, to, uh, we don't want the thought of meeting together in an under, underground graveyard uh, to just to be with one another. We don't want thought, that thought to be foreign. I hope it doesn't get to that point, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't put it past ourselves. All right, we want, by the end of this, for you to long for fellowship with your brothers and sisters in this room. That we would go to whatever length possible to attain fellowship as the Bible has defined it. But to do that, again, we need to get back to the basics. So let's begin with number one, the counterfeit of fellowship. The counterfeit of fellowship. Why do I start here? Why do I start here? Because before we can understand what fellowship is, we must understand what biblical fellowship is not. Right, when I use the word counterfeit, I'm speaking of that kind of fellowship that exists among some in the church, which is not really fellowship at all. In other words, it's a facade of fellowship. It has this initial appearance of something that's true that people might call fellowship. People believe it's fellowship, but in reality, it's not fellowship. It's a counterfeit. It's a fake. It's a fraud. For example, I think we've I think we've all seen this type of fellowship on either end of the spectrum. You know, either on one hand, you find churches that just have uh, friendly relationships with one another. Uh, you, could, you could call them friendly, and they, but there doesn't seem to be any biblical basis for their friendship. Right? They're, they're, ne- they're near one another, but their relationships are not theological in nature. They pat each other on the back, they hug each other, they cry with one another, um, they, they seem concerned about each other. But that isn't necessarily biblical fellowship. And on the other hand, the other end of the spectrum, you can find churches that have unmatched theological depth that undergirds everything that they do. Right? But for some reason, they're stoic. They're stern. They might be awkwardly silent when they should be talking with one another. They don't seem to laugh when they should or cry when they should. Everything feels just overly formal or, or restrictive. And that's not necessarily biblical fellowship either. And neither of these examples really illustrates what true Christian fellowship truly is. And both, in essence, are a fraud. It's a counterfeit type of fellowship. One's this type of heavy-handed, uh, yeah, this just heavy-handed, and the other is just this fuzzy, warm likability. J. Vernon McGee, he spoke of a time when he was invited to speak, not at a church, but at the Huntington Beach Rotary Club. And there was a banner as he, drove, uh, as he came up to the club. It said, fun, food, and fellowship. Fun, food, and fellowship. And this is what J. Vernon McGee says about it. Quote, well, the food was nothing to brag about. Embalmed chicken and peas as big as bullets. The fun was corny jokes. The fellowship consisted of one man patting another on the back and said, hey, Bill, how's business? Or, how's the wife? And then they sang a little song together, and that was their idea of fellowship. Well, he says, the Christian idea of fellowship is not much different. What do they mean by fellowship? They mean meeting around a table and talking to each other about everything under the sun except the one thing that would give them true fellowship, the person of Christ. End quote. Now I begin with that example because this is really a part of the Apostle John's argument. The the term for fellowship, we get from the Greek, it's koinonia. 
koinonia, is used only four times in the book of 1 John. He never uses it in 2 John or 3 John, and he never used it in the Gospel of John. And all four occurrences of John using it are here in 1 John uh, 1 verse 3 and then 6 and 7. And in this passage, he's concerned about trying to bring this true, these true believers into the knowledge of this fellowship that they have with the Father through the Spirit. And I bring this to your attention because John is doing, doing this against the backdrop of false teachers. There were false teachers among the believers who, who were trying to woo John's audience. And they were claiming that they also had true fellowship. But John's saying, no, no. Not at all. The fellowship that they have is a lie. In fact, some commentators would say that the context of, of, of introducing this word for fellowship uh, in First John, it holds more weight because John never uses it anywhere else. Nonetheless, though, he begins with this term fellowship, koinonia, because the false teachers were actually using that word and claiming that they could have fellowship with God without having fellowship with other believers. And John says, hey, that cannot work. That can't work because true fellowship with God means true fellowship not only with us, but with the apostles and those who are there with him. There was only one kind of true fellowship, and that fellowship couldn't be had outside of the revelation of God. All right, so we see in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, that deep True, lasting fellowship requires a profound understanding of the Bible and the truths of Scripture that can only be had through the revelation of the Son of God. And so true Christian fellowship requires, again, an understanding of the Bible, which always goes lock and key with deep, profound understanding and relationship with other believers. And it's so important that we grasp this John, he'll later say in chapter 4 that we love because he first loved us. Scripture says that this is more than just a sweet sentiment. It's just, it's more than just a nice idea. But this is a reality. That if it weren't for the Spirit of God regenerating every Christian and causing them to be born again, there would be no fellowship among us. Without our common salvation, there's no common fellowship. That means that if you have not believed in Jesus Christ through faith, there can never be anything more at this church than just coffee and cookies. In fact, without love and deep gratitude and the obedience to Christ that dominates our fellowship, the church can become just a little bit more than a glorified pub on the edge of heaven. In fact, there might be more true affectionate feelings and of togetherness at the local bar on Saturday night than there are at church on most Sunday mornings. Right? At least at the pub, everyone shows their true colors. And why do I say that? Because without true and living relationship with Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, so-called churches are reduced to just being religious forms of self-help. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Because if we have a counterfeit fellowship, what unites us is not the love for the Savior, but it's just our mutual identification with each other's problems. Right? If we have a counterfeit, fake 
facade of fellowship, we come here just to commiserate with one another with our common struggles. See, if our fellowship is fake, then we come here just to talk about all the things that are wrong with us and wrong with our world and wrong with our boss and wrong with our families. So it's really not a Christian fellowship with hearts that are burning for the gospel. No, that group becomes now the group of lonely hearts. See, if we're not careful, it can all be a counterfeit fellowship. It's not true Christian fellowship. And that's, and that's what we see. That's the first facet of fellowship. We need to be aware that that can exist. The fake type of fellowship. We need to be aware of this counterfeit fellowship. And fellowship in many churches is phony. And the opposite of what true fellowship really is. And so if that's the facade, then what's the real thing? What's true, genuine, biblical fellowship? Well, that brings us to our second facet this morning, which I call the core of fellowship. The core of fellowship. If we have the counterfeit, and that must be discarded or avoided, then what is true fellowship? See, fellowship at its foundation is everything that we do as believers. See, fellowship, it's vital to the life of the church. It's not some peripheral issue. It's not an issue of small or mild importance to us. And it's paramount that we understand what true biblical fellowship really is. And here's how it works, right? We love Christ. Therefore, we love the body of Christ. And the proof of that, the proof that we love him is always seen in how we love one another. Can I say it again? The proof that we love Christ is always shown through how we love one another. Because if you love him, you love others who also love him. That's what we saw in Colossians chapter 3 last week. We interact with one another in that acknowledgement of the love that we have for the Savior. Right? And then that becomes fellowship. This word fellowship again is koinonia. It has this idea of having something in common. Sharing something. The New Testament writers, they didn't write in the, with the classic form of Greek. They wrote the New Testament using a, a, a type of, of Greek text. And it's known, known as koine Greek. Right? And that's, it comes from the same word, koinonia. It's, what they, it's the, the Greek of the common man. And in the same way, koinonia, this is the common fellowship. It's what we have in common with one another. The fellowship of the church is this common fellowship because of the great spiritual realities that believers have with one another. So follow the timeline with me here. Just looking at the first century. Based on the usage of this word, uh, before the coming of Pentecost in Acts, in the coming of the Spirit, and before the birth of the church, it seems as if there wasn't this oneness that you could describe as koinonia. But Jesus, if you, if you recall reading and seeing in his ministry, he says that the church, that they, the disciples, were going to be one. We see in the Gospels that Jesus had told them they were going to be unified. They had to become unified. And yet that experience of this profound unity had not yet come to the church after his ascension. And so we move ahead 
take, put a pause on that. We move ahead 60 years to when John's writing this. And John is writing to this little band of believers and saying, we want you now to have fellowship with us and now have fellowship with the Father and the Son. So Charles Haddon Spurgeon comments on this passage. He expands on that thought. He says this, quote, The twelve apostles were favored with the most intimate interaction with our blessed Lord, but I can hardly say that they entered into fellowship with him during his life on earth. Each of them might have been asked the question that he put, that the Lord put to Philip, Have I not been with you so long that you don't know me? But after Christ had ascended to heaven, the Spirit of God had rested on his disciples. And so far as the Spirit did rest on them, all they had seen and all that they had heard and all that they had handled of their Lord became a means of communion between himself and them. And then they were able to realize what a very near and deep and familiar communion had been possible to them through having spent some three and a half years with him in public and in private and actually having seen him and heard his voice and touched him and felt the touch of his hand. And so it's the Spirit's work to provide such close communion, right? So when John says to his readers in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, that you might have fellowship with us, who's the us? Well, it's the apostles, right? Those who physically saw him and conversed with Jesus, and now they had been given this type of fellowship. And he wished, John, wished that they might have that same belief, that same hope, that same joy which the apostles had coming from the fact that they had physically walked with the incarnate Christ. So to have fellowship, he says in verse 3, is to have fellowship with us who have fellowship with the Father. And he means that he wants all of them to have the same peace, the same happiness, the same incredible heart comfort that they had when they had seen the risen Christ. He wants for the church to have the same views and partake of the same fellowship. And that's what we share even today here in this church building. That's what all believers share. We have, because of the Father, a living relationship with the Son of God through His Spirit. And I want you to think about it for a moment. If someone came up to you and said, you know, I want you to have fellowship with Abraham Lincoln. Or I want you to have fellowship with King Tut. Or I want you to have fellowship with Christopher Columbus or Moses or the Apostle Paul. You'd look and say to them, uh, there's no way that you can have fellowship with a dead guy, right? Or I hope that's what you'd say. But when you can say, when we can say that we can have fellowship with the living Son of God, right? He is the eternal Son of God. And now that fellowship can be a reality, Again, this fellowship carries the idea of sharing common life. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9 says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, Paul writes, If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, make my joy complete. Right? He's inferring, of course, that there is fellowship with the Spirit. See, believers are those who have this intimate common communion relationships of sharing the grace of God first with God 
and then with others. Fellowship is something that has happened to them. You don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says that when the 3,000 souls that were saved at Pentecost, do you know what they were, uh, uh, you know what they were doing right after they got saved? Acts 2.42 says, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And guess what else? Fellowship. They were devoting themselves to fellowship. And of course, it makes sense, right? Devoted to teaching, right? They're, they're devoted to learning. And they're devoted to breaking bread. That's remembering. We did it this morning. Taking communion with one another. They were devoted to prayer, right? Talking with God. But they were also devoting themselves to fellowship. When was the last time you asked yourself, how am I devoted to fellowship? At least that's what, was, that's what the early church was defined by. They were defined by their devotion to fellowship. John Stott, he says this, fellowship is a specifically Christian word and denotes that common participation in the grace of God. The salvation of Christ, the indwelling spirit, which is the spiritual birthright of every believer. So, when John writes in verse 3, Since you know that we have fellowship with God, as those who walked with Christ, we now invite you to join in the fellowship with us. He's saying now that there's this vertical relationship that we have with God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, through his spirit. And since that's been established... Now that you've brought, been brought into fellowship with God on a vertical level, now the horizontal relationship with all believers must be fully realized and intact. Right? Since we know the Father, we must now know one another. So to illustrate this, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> Jesus says something really interesting for our time in this topic. Jesus says in Mark 10, 28, after he's just talked to the rich young ruler who couldn't come to the point where he was willing to give up all his earthly possessions to follow Christ. We read this in verse 28. And Peter, he began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake. Verse 30, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. And Peter asked that question in verse 28 from the correct understanding, right? He understood that in this life, the one who follows Jesus Christ gives up on every relationship that separates him from Christ. And Peter understood, you know, I, we've left everything. We've left everyone. And Jesus, he comforts Peter and us this morning with this grand statement, right? If you leave your father, if you leave your mother or family for my sake... It's okay. It's even the right thing to do. But you will have fathers and mothers a hundredfold. In this present life, I will give you a new family. I will give you people who love you and you give you people to love. Right? That is the fellowship. This is your reward. This is the inheritance. This is the church. 
that God's provided. Jerry Bridges says this about our passage in 1 John. Quote, John is referring to the subjective aspect of fellowship. The subjective aspect of fellowship. And this type of fellowship we refer to as communion. Right? Communing with each other is the experience of our union. One illustration of this is in the marriage relationship. Right? We marry someone. There's an objective aspect to that marriage. It's a legal union formed the moment we say, I do. That's our status, even when we're apart or emotionally distant. But subjectively, we can experience a close, warm relationship only as we spend time with one another. And so here's the idea. Because we spend time together, because we're face-to-face in this room, because it matters to us to make our fellowship with Christ known to one another then we long to place ourselves in situations in the body of Christ and even here at Church of the Canyon so that we can experience that subjective aspect of fellowship that he talks about, right? That's our communing with one another. Our communing is something that transcends just friendship. So it's not this counterfeit of fellowship that we're talking about or we're seeking. It's this core of our fellowship, which is Christ and his gospel. Now let's look at our third aspect of fellowship. The third uh, facet of fellowship is the crop of fellowship, the crop of fellowship. I'm just taking or borrowing from the farming illustration, right? Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. And so your fellowship will produce fruit. You'll have a crop to harvest. Go back to 1 John. 1 John, in chapter, th- uh, chapter 3, verse 14, he says something here. And in, in, in verse 14, John says something that might be the most radical statement in the entire theology of fellowship. He says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you're no longer going to hell, but you're now going to heaven? What's the proof? What's the evidence? What's the fruit that we love the brethren? This is undeniable proof of fellowship. John is saying the assurance that you're saved and have passed from the condemnation of hell and eternal death and are passing to eternal life is that you love one another. You know, Matt, I'm not sure if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm going to heaven. Well, do you love Christians? Do you want to be with Christians? Would you go to the depths of a cemetery just to be with other Christians for whom Christ died? Well, and if the answer is yes, John says that you have assurance that you belong to him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what does John mean? He means that we like the fellowship of those of the 3,000 that were converted in Acts chapter 2, joined the fellowship. Nothing could keep them away. Love for the brethren had become one of the biggest and deepest things on earth. See, fellowship had become more important to them than any of their sweetest earthly ties. When people become Christians, they want to spend all their time with Christians and they become concerned about them. The proof of their Christianity is that the the proof 
is that their, their lives are changed. All right? It gives them a new birth. It gives them a whole new family. And this, this family bond, this new Christian tie, goes deeper than any natural or social or national ties. They are drawn together and they cannot keep from being uh, apart. And so, one way that you can know that you are heaven bound is if you see love in your life for other believers. This burning in your heart and desire to want to be with them. That means that you are here on a Sunday morning. It means that you make Sunday morning a priority. It means that when you're not here, it makes you sick. It means that you want to share that intimacy that God has placed within your heart through the faith in the Son of God. The the problem is that sometimes we have issues expressing this type of fellowship and this assurance that we have. Let me put it to you another way. And hopefully this will be really practical for us. You know, some of... Some of you aren't, aren't um, you're not encouraged in your salvation through fellowship at church for a couple of reasons. Maybe A, you've either bought into the facade or the fake or the imitation of fellowship. Or B, you don't have the true foundation of fellowship, right? Which is the spirit indwelling by faith. Or C, you don't know how in this context to be in fellowship. You don't know what fellowship looks like. You don't know what the fruit of fellowship is. And so, again, I hope to be really applicational for us here at Church of the Canyons. And so we've, we've learned what fellowship is not supposed to be. And we learned what fellowship is supposed to be grounded in. So what does it look like? What's the fruit then on this campus, in this room, when we're together? Christian fellowship, I've already told you, cannot be just the greeting time. It can't just be uh, over coffee beforehand. That cannot be the extent of our fellowship. True Christian fellowship has to be seen. Listen, what, what would happen? Think about it. What would happen if we changed our conversation from how was work or you know, how's retirement to how's your walk with Christ? That might lead to true depth. And I get it. I get it. It can be uncomfortable for some of us because we've been doing fellowship, maybe superficially, for a while. But biblical Christian fellowship is not superficial. Right? It's not, a true Christian fellowship is not just for the extroverted either. It's not just for the outgoing. True biblical fellowship is for the believer. Christian fellowship is this. When we hear the truth from God's word, we then understand our identification with one another. And now we're prepared to be with one another and then deal with those ramifications. Let me put it to you this way. Unless our conversations start to tend towards the greatness of Jesus Christ in our lives, we might as well be up the street at the country club having brunch this morning. If your conversations in this room or phone calls during the week or at Bible studies or at the park, if they don't eventually gravitate towards Christ and his greatness, and I say eventually because those people who exclusively talk about the Bible only and only about spiritual things, uh, they can be perceived as maybe a little weird. 
It's okay. It's okay to talk about the game last night or how work is going or a band that you just found out about. But eventually, true Christian fellowship gravitates to Christ and his greatness. Then you talk about how that's working out in your life. And then you talk about how you want to see that worked out in someone else's life. And what God is teaching you about himself. It can be a little bit about you, right? You can remind people that you had surgery last week. Or you have something coming up. Right? Things like that are very, very important. But ultimately, Sunday morning, and our intention when we as believers come together, we are not to be the focus of anything. But Christ and his gospel is a thing that takes center stage. So what does this look like? Let me give you some ideas. And if you come up with more, as you're thinking there, come up and tell me your ideas. I want to hear more about them. You know, here, these are just some things that you, you could think about doing. You know, our service here at church starts at 10 in the morning, 10 a.m. How about getting to church 10 minutes early to be ready to engage with someone? Come ready before the timer hits zero. Right? How can you fellowship with people when you roll in in the second song and you leave right after benediction? I love getting to church early because I get to touch base with people. I get to see how people are really doing. And my intention when I come early is to look, to, look for new visitors. Right? I want to extend a hand of fellowship to them. On behalf of Christ. And as we, as we as a church, as we gain greater awareness of one another, the greater our fellowship can be with one another. Listen, I'm terrible with names. And some of you, I've asked your name more than I'd like to admit. But if I can break through that hurdle, right, how much deeper the fellowship can be. Right? The gain is so much more. Christian fellowship is accomplished when we know one another. Knowing each other's names, it's a beginning, right? It's a way we can start. But I want to be able to take that conversation just beyond, you know, hey, my name's Matt, to eventually, like, what's the Lord teaching you in your life? I want to come to the place where it's not all just a scripted Sunday conversation, and you're thinking, okay, great, man. Okay, according to you, I'm just to sit here and talk about Jesus all morning. You know, like, how's Jesus with you today? Like, that's not what I'm saying either. All right, we want to be able to sit here and talk about Christ in our lives now. It's going to be intimidating for some of you. Some of you are uncomfortable because you're not walking with Jesus the six other days of the week. And so when you come... Your fellowship has been trying to make this superficial connection. You know, many times our reluctance to become more involved with other believers flows from the fact that we're not involved with Christ during the week. That's hard to hear, I know. It might be awkward to come in here and have, one, have someone sit down next to you and say, you want to share about the trials that I've been going through and I want to share about the complete faithfulness of God to me. And if you feel awkward and if you feel out of place and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, wow, that's the first time I thought about God all week. Right? I have my Bible in my hand, but it has dust on it from the back seat where I put it last Sunday. 
See, one of the reasons we feel uncomfortable is because we have set such a low standard for ourselves and we're barely hanging on a thread. And the truth of the matter is that for Christians, first and foremost, before anything else, before we can have fellowship with one another, we have to have and and nurture that living, active relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. And if that, if that relationship with God the Father is not the reason that we come together on a Sunday morning, you need to answer the question, then why are we even here? You understand that if we come together just to share stories about our sports matches or how we did in business this week, there are other groups for that. See, there is no common life just in our common experiences. The only common life that we can share is where the life has been given to us by Christ himself. Let me say it a different way. We want to get to the point where if you come into this room and if you see people talking to one another, then you can be assured that fellowship is happening. And if you see people sitting there by, your, by themselves, right, and having no connection to people around them, you know what your mission is on a Sunday morning? You could guess it. Your mission is to go fellowship with them. Right? As a believer, you go to them. I want this mentality for our church so bad. There's a little, there's going to be a learning curve. I get it because we're used to kind of sticking uh, to our own little world, right? Where we open the garage door, drive in, shut it, and find refuge in our house. And sometimes that happens at church. But if you come to church and allow yourself to work and to sit down by that person who's by themselves and just kind of staring off into space and try to share the glory of Christ with them, what incredible things could happen in this church? You might say, well, what if they're not believers? What if they're here visiting? Well, you have the perfect opportunity to share the gospel with them. And you share the love of Christ with them. So this is your Sunday morning mission, right? Whenever you're with believers, that ought to be the mission. You're to be the one that unfolds the love of Christ and it shows in your demeanor and the people should come into this room knowing that above all people in their their lives, at their work, at their school, that we, Church of the Canyons, above all people, love and care and support and encourage them with the good news of Christ over and over and over and over again. Even if you're an introvert, even if you're an introvert and you're walking well, you're maybe not a people person, but you are a believer, right? Remember the objective aspect of fellowship. You're objectively fellowshipping with one another. You need to just build your fellowship muscle up a little bit. Right? It's okay to start slow. Right? We're not going to change overnight. And still, if you're wrestling with what I've been saying and what we examined this morning, you've got to ask the question, why? Why does that make me squirm? See, if I have issues with true biblical fellowship, we must come to the point where we're willing to see that our issues might not be with fellowship, our issues might be with God. And I'm willing to bet that if you're having trouble fellowshipping with believers, it's because the vertical relationship has been disrupted. See, we need the fruit of fellowship 
to be manifesting in our lives so that the proof of our salvation is seen vividly and brilliantly to others who are watching. So that we might know that we've passed from death into eternal life because we love the brethren. And so it's not a counterfeit fellowship and we must embrace the core of fellowship and then we must be excited to see the crop of this fellowship as we work this out in the weeks and in the months and the years to come at Church of the Canyons. I'll end with this. There's a British pastor named John Fawcett who lived from 1739 to 1817. And he pastored a very, very small church in a small town of England. And it was so small and so poor that his annual salary was only 20 pounds. 20 pounds a year. And in 1773, he was offered the opportunity to go pastor a larger church. In London, right? And a larger congregation means a larger paycheck. And initially, he accepted. But as his belongings were being loaded upon the wagons for the journey, people started, people of his church started coming by, saying their goodbyes, bidding him farewell. And the goodbyes were so emotional, so tearful, that while the things were loaded, his wife Mary cried out, said, John, I cannot bear to leave. John agreed, I can't either. We will remain here with our people. So they unloaded the wagon and he spent the rest of his ministry with that congregation. They were there for 54 years in that small church, in that small community. And years later, as he was thinking back to the moment where he had almost left to London, he wrote his most famous hymn, Blessed Be the Ties That Bind. I want to read just a few lines from that. And as I do, think about that moment and the love of the pastor for his people and the love that the people had for his pastor that motivated him to stay. Blessed be the ties that bind our Christian hearts in love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. When we are called to part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined at heart and hope to meet again. From sorrow, toil, and pain, and sin, we shall be free, and perfect love and friendship reign through all eternity. John Fawcett understood that fellowship with one another was more valuable than a bigger church or a bigger paycheck or a bigger salary. And so let's strive, Church of the Canyons, to build and practice this true fellowship with one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for us it almost seems impossible that early Christians would go to such extent to meet in the catacombs, in the graves, among dead men's bones. They wanted to commune with one another so badly that they would do anything because they loved you and their Savior, Jesus Christ. And through your Spirit, they were transformed into fellowship with one another. Father God, please, on behalf of this body sitting before me, on behalf of this church, transform us. Transform Church of the Canyons to be a group that is not superficial or counterfeit in our fellowship. 
Let each member become a sounding board to one another of the glories and the righteousness and wonders of Christ. Let us <clears throat> let that be even our testimony as we dismiss this morning, as we go to lunch with one another. Let it be the case in our homes. Let it be the case in our marriages. Let us think and talk of things in our lives, of course. But let's speak more gloriously of him who has given us light and life. Let us speak of